I've been hearing uh, Kathy's sick, and I probably got at least 10 other folks that called, asked for prayer, that are sick, colds, flus, crazy, huh? It all started, I won't say that. (laughs) Hey, if you got your Bibles with you tonight, let's start in the book of Numbers, and uh, just as a... By way of a quick review, we'll cover uh, a little bit of what we've talked about already. <laughs> you can go ahead and flip to that next slide. As we went through the first couple of chapters, uh, actually we've been through the first four chapters of the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is probably, honestly, if we really want to get down to it, of the Pentateuch, the book of Numbers has the most to speak to you and me. The reason for that is because the book of Numbers is basically the book written on the wilderness wanderings. And for the majority of us, that's what life is like, a wilderness wandering, looking for that victorious Christian life when we cross over the Jordan into the promised land, that promised rest that uh, Jesus Christ promises us. And so as we go through, we're going to see more and more events that take place that are going to point not only to Christ, but are going to point to our relationship with Him and how we might be able to draw nearer to Him. Now, as we talked in the beginning chapters, the the book of Numbers gets its name from the numberings. We'll see another uh, census as we get toward the end. But as we take a look, just by way of remembrance, that the tribe of Ephraim actually can, consists of uh, three other tribes under the banner of Ephraim, which is the ox. They would camp to the west. The, the family of the Levites that would be between Ephraim and the tabernacle are the Gershonites. So we got the Gershonites camped to the west between the tabernacle and Ephraim. Ephraim under the banner of the ox. Uh, We have to the south, Reuben. And between Reuben and the tabernacle are the Kohathites. The Kohathites. Reuben is going to encamp under the banner of the man. And so he would encamp to the south side. And we come to the east side. We have Judah encamped under the banner of the lion. We've all heard of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And between Judah... And the tabernacle will be the family of Moses and Aaron, the priesthood that will be between them and the tabernacle to the east side. On the west, or I'm sorry, on the north side, the family of Merari is going to be between Dan and the tabernacle, the tribe of Dan encamped under the ensign of the eagle. You'll remember. We look at those four ensigns, they're going to come up over and over and over again. The four faces of the cherubim, the seraphim, the living creatures around the throne of God. Also, we see them in the four Gospels, uh, each one speaking to one of the Gospels. Lion of the tribe of Judah is Matthew. Uh, The eagle is John. Ox, the servant, is Mark. And man is Luke. So you see the four Gospels, you see the four faces The four faces on the cherubim and the seraphim. That's something that we're going to see come up over and over again as we go through the Old Testament. Again, if you remember, this is how they would encamp. They would stay encamped based on the size 
of the, the box or the square of the tabernacle and the tribes of Levite. And so we know as an, an, an aerial view of the encampment was a picture of the cross. Based on the numbers that they have, anyone who saw them from the air, from a mountaintop, looking down on them, like we'll see Balaam in a few chapters, would have seen a cross coming by. Last week, we can go to the next slide. Last week when we talked specifically about the four families of the Levites and how they were divided, you remember each one had a responsibility in taking down the tabernacle. Each one had a responsibility. The Gershonites, their responsibility was all the cloth, the curtains, the linen fence, all of those things they would have been responsible for gathering up. The Kohathites, they took all the holy objects, for example, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the Altar of Incense, uh, all, all of the, the seven pieces of furniture that were a part of the tabernacle. Uh, the sons of Merari, they would take all the framework, the boards of gold, the posts that the linen fence went on. Moses and the priests were responsible to prepare everything before the Kohathites or the Gershonites or the sons of Merari could come in and begin to pick it up. So they would go in and prepare it. How did they prepare it? They covered it with a cloth of blue. Blue is always a picture of heaven. Over that cloth of blue, they would put badger skins. Humility over everything we see happening within the tabernacle, around the tabernacle, and the moving of the tabernacle continues to point to Christ. The Gershonites and the sons of Merari were given oxes and carts to move their stuff. But the Kohathites were not given that... They were to carry the furniture on their shoulders. You remember, in a little while, we'll get to the book of Samuel. We'll study how David, in bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to the nation of Israel, we often wonder, where did he get the idea to put it on a cart? Well, two of the four families of the Levites were allowed to put the things they had on a cart. But the furniture must be carried on the shoulders of the Kohathites. It was to be carried by them. It was a burden to be brought by them. The other thing that we see in that, everybody's burden wasn't the same. The sons of Merari had much heavier stuff to bring. They brought all the gold inlaid, gold-covered boards, the sockets of silver and bronze, the hooks, all that stuff. And God gave unto them more carts and oxen than He gave to the Gershonites. The Gershonites, maybe they had a little bit less to carry, but still they had oxes and carts. And the Kohathites, they carried it all by hand. The point that we're making as we take a look at what, how the book of Numbers was breaking it down, everyone has a responsibility or a place where they fit within the body of Christ. We see it even in the Old Testament. And everybody's road is not the same. Some of us will carry, carry heavier burdens Others of us will carry lighter burdens. doesn't make any difference. It doesn't mean God loves one more than the other. All it means is every one of our walks are different. <coughs> he also, and we'll see uh, if we make it to chapter 7 tonight, we'll see the order in which the camp was to pick up and to go. But this gives us a, a basic background so that you'll remember where we've come from. We can slip over to the next slide and we can... Take a look at chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Now, as we come to chapter 5, we're going to see the, the camp is getting prepared. We saw them being organized. 
Now we're going to see the preparation for movement, the preparation for going forward. And it's going to start with purification. Chapter 5, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge, and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse. You shall put out both male and female. You will put them outside the camp that they may not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. God laid out for his people that because he dwelt in the midst of the camp, that that sin needed to be put outside of the camp. Sin needed to be placed outside. The, 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 The picture of leprosy is that of sin, of being unclean. Remember, we talked about it going through the book of Leviticus. That which is unclean will make the holy defiled just by touching it. But the holy doesn't make the unclean clean just by touching. God calls for us to cut sin out of our life. That's what he's telling them to do right there. He's telling them to remove sin out from your midst. Can I, because I walk in a, in a place of grace, live my life any way I want to? Can I do anything I want to? I mean, God's going to forgive me, right? The book of Romans chapter 6 says that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. So shall I sin that grace would abound? Paul says, certainly not. How can we, who have died to sin, live any longer in it? The point is, the nation of Israel is a called out people. The church is a called out people, aren't they? Doesn't God call us to be separated from them, not to look just like the world, not to be just like the world, to be set apart, holy? So here's what he's doing. He wants sin in the camp to be dealt with. And we've been talking for weeks. We may talk about it for years. That, that there's a, a, a move of God's spirit happening within, <coughs> excuse me, within our fellowship. And part of that is, we'll see throughout the Old Testament, the desire of God to have judgment prior to revival begin in the house of God. That means we look at ourselves. Where am I? What's in my life? What am I allowing in my life? What am I saying? Oh, that's okay. It's no big deal. What is it that's in my life that's still restraining me from being able to be everything that God wants me to be? And something that you allow in your life, I might not be able to allow in mine. We have different roads, right? But God is the one who's going to direct. God is the one who's going to speak to our hearts. And for us, individually, to ignore that, that call of God, and we all know it, you know if there's something God's calling you to let go, you know it there, it's bugging you even right now. If for us not to do it is sin. For us not to be obedient in that area, in our personal walk with the Lord, is sin. And the Lord wants, as we see here even in Numbers chapter 5, put sin outside of the camp. Deal with it. Get it outside. Why? Because the Lord dwells in the midst of the camp. Well, how does that relate to you and I? Well, the Lord dwells in you. The Bible says we are the temple of God, aren't we? The, the God, the creator of the universe, dwells within us. So the same way, what's in our lives? What do we need to Cut away. 
Remember the psalmist would cry out, Lord, search me, find me. If there be any wicked way in me, cleanse it. Purge me now with hyssop. Hyssop was the the plant with which they would apply the blood. The, The psalmist would be crying out, Lord, apply the blood in my life. Apply the blood. Forgive me, purge me, help me lay it aside that I can go on with you. Now, we all know David wasn't perfect, right? But he was something we all would desire to be. A man after God's own heart. So, the concept, setting aside sin, putting sin outside the camp. When we come into the promised land, there's going to be a great victory at Jericho and a defeat at Ai. Why was there a defeat at Ai? Sin in the camp. Had to be dealt with. Sin in the camp. The children of Israel could not move forward because there was sin in the camp. You and I, in our spiritual growth, we will stop moving forward when there's sin in the camp. We will stop having victory over things in our life. We'll stop all those things that had been going on around us because there's sin in the camp. God's patient. He'll wait. He'll wait for us to make a decision that we want to deal with that. That we want to cut it out, put it outside, and move forward. And then we'll again begin to continue to grow. But that's a constant thing that takes place in our lives. Why? Because God's doing a work in our lives to sanctify us, to make us holy. Is it something we're going to do on our own? No, it's something God does in each of us. And it's not the same for everyone. It's not the same. It, we have, I, I have my walk with God. And there are requirements that God has in my life that He may not have in yours. But that doesn't have anything to do with it. The Kohathites had to carry everything on their shoulder. The Gershonites, they got to put it on a cart. And God would say, so, you come and follow me. Shoulder your burden. Allow me to set you apart or sanctify you. And do this work in your life. Now, Scripture is going to go on. And the children of Israel did so. Put them outside the camp as the Lord spoke to Moses. So the children of Israel did. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel. When a man or woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord, and that person is guilty, he will confess the sin which he has committed. He will make restitution for his trespass in full plus one-fifth and give it to the one he has wronged. When someone had committed, you notice, when a man had committed sin against another man, but yet the Lord says it's against him. Remember what the psalmist was saying in Psalm 51? Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. When we wrong a brother or a sister, not only have we wronged them, We've sinned against the Lord. And God lays out His ideal of restitution. His ideal of restitution is that there's more to being forgiven, should I say, or having a right relationship with God than saying, I'm sorry. There was payment for what was damaged. Well, we we all know Cole got in an accident uh, Friday. And fortunately... He's alive, however, the car's not alive. 
And the accident is Cole's fault. Now, how would it be if after the accident, I, I went over to the, the other family that was involved in the accident and said, oh my gosh, you know, we're so sorry. Please forgive us. You know, so thankful that, that God forgives and, and hopefully God's going to provide for your need because your car's pretty messed up right now too and we'll see you later. That don't work, right? That's not, really good. <laughs> no, that's not going to work out very good. There's to be restitution. In God's economy, this is what was required. Confession of the sin and restitution of the, of the trespass plus 20%. That was what God required for things to be right. What's he teaching? He's teaching us to grow up. He's teaching us to take responsibility for the things we do wrong. He's teaching us that there's more to this life than just being able to say, I'm sorry I was wrong, but that there's something to be paid or done in, in case to make things right, to, 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 make, to make the situation the way that it ought to be. But listen, in verse 8 it says, But what if the man has no relative to whom restitution can be made for the wrong? Then the restitution for the wrong goes to the Lord. So then, rather than paying the man, whatever took place, whatever happened, whatever wrong was done, you confess it, but there's nobody to pay. The family's gone. Then the Lord says, then you give it to the Lord. You pay what was owed, plus 20%, and you give it to the Lord. You hand it over to Him. Restitution must go to the Lord. In addition to the ram of the atonement, with which... The atonement is made for him. So as we're growing up, God is also teaching us all sin is against him. And it's not about what uh, the money does for the person you're giving it to or restitution does for the one to whom you're giving it. It's all about what that restitution teaches me. What it teaches us. How it teaches us to grow. How it teaches us to view sin how it, it deters and, and helps us to think properly about what sin's all about and what it costs. It's, when, listen, when I was at Joshua Springs, one, I, I don't even remember what time of year it was. <clears throat> it might have been during Christmas break. I don't remember. Some kids got this wild idea that they were going to go burn down a classroom. Now, what could have happened was the whole school burned down. They actually dumped a few gallons of gasoline on a trailer, a portable classroom, lit it on fire. Fortunately, none of them were hurt. And it went up. Well, you guys know how a trailer goes up, right? It went up and melted some of the trailers around it, but none of the other trailers caught on fire. The police department responded. Uh... Someone saw the flames right away. You know, a lot of things happened. And so that was all that was destroyed. The fire department came out, saw the footprints in the dirt, and followed them. And they led them to a house on which they knocked on the door and caught the first of the three kids that were responsible for burning down the, the trailer. It didn't take them very long to, to get that all worked out. Well, you know, when confronted with their guilt, every one of the kids was sorry. 
Sorry didn't put a classroom back in. When that trailer burned, because of the, the chemical reactions in the burn, it created a hazardous waste site that must be cleaned. The cost of cleaning the hazardous waste site was in the tens of thousands of dollars. Not to mention the value of the classroom, which was moderately placed at around $80,000 to replace. And so by the time all this restitution was done, you have, you have three kids looking at, you know, tens of thousands each to pay in restitution. As they worked their way through that, that restitution affected more than those kids, right? Well, I mean, let's face it, them, those kids, some of those kids were hoping to have futures and go to college and do things, but before their day in court, they wanted to make sure restitution was done. Now, if you owe $40,000 in restitution, where are you going to get that if you're 17 years old? You probably don't have it in your bank account. So in one case, one boy's dad sold his Harley, some other things that they had around the house to raise the money. So restitution not only affected him, affected his father affected his family and it taught them to look at those things in a totally different light what on that night seemed like a funny little prank and haha and we'll never get caught you know the weeks afterwards wasn't so funny and they didn't look at it nowhere near as light and as we see that we see this same concept taught in god's word thousands of years ago in the law of restitution to pay back plus 20%, and if you can't pay them back, you give it to the Lord. But restitution is ultimately going to be made. And then he says in verse 9, Every offering of all the holy things of the children of Israel, <clears throat> which they bring to the priest, shall be his. And every man's holy thing shall be his. Whatever any man gives, the priest is his. So once you brought your offering and you gave it, it ceased to be yours. And it belonged to the priests. In your economy, you gave your gift to the Lord. And God says, now it belongs to the priests. And he's going to do, you know, the things that God calls him to do with that. So this is what he lays out for him. In verse 11, he says, And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Now speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him, and a man lies with her carnally, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband. It is concealed that she has defiled herself, and there was no witness against her, nor was she caught. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife, even though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. This is called the law of jealousy. And it's a trip. But as we look at this, keep in mind that we've talked about this before. When we go through the Old Testament scriptures, we want to have eyes for pattern. For pattern is prophecy. In Hebrew, pattern is prophecy. What's the pattern? What's being painted? What's the picture that this is all laying out for us? And hopefully... When we get there, we'll be able to unravel some of that. So here's what he does. He brings his wife to the priest. 
And he will bring the offering required for her one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He will put no oil on it and no frankincense on it. So this is different than a meal offering. This is a jealousy offering. And the barley is going to speak of humiliation. There's an act of humiliation that has taken place or hasn't taken place. And no one can know the truth. And the husband is overwhelmed with jealousy. So there's one who knows the truth, and that's God. And this is what they're going to do to find it. And so he says, because it is a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering, for bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest will take holy water in an earthen vessel, take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle, and put it into the water. And the priest will stand over the woman before the Lord, uncover the woman's head, and put the offering for remembering in her hands, which is a grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings the curse. And the priest shall put her under oath, and say to the woman, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone astray to uncleanness, while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself with some other man other than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse, and he will say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell. There is a lot of discussion in higher thinking circles as to what the Hebrew intends when it says thigh rot, belly swell. Could be pointing to a miscarriage. The reason for that, obviously, belly swelling, we understand, could be a sign of pregnancy. But the thigh, putting your hand under the thigh, was always the synonymous with the loins or where life uh, comes from or life extends from so it's possible that it could be talking about the curse being hey if you've if you slept with someone else you're going to miscarry if you haven't you'll be able to have children we'll see that as we go through i'm not really sure that that's a important point uh you could say the thigh rot and the belly swell i mean to the to the point i think that the lord's making It's the same either way, but I thought I ought to bring that out for you. Now, it says in verse uh, 22, And may this water that causes a curse go into your stomach, make your belly swell, and your thigh rot, and the woman will say, Amen, Amen. So be it. So be it. I'm in agreement. And then the priest will write these curses in a book. And he will scrape them off into the bitter water. So he would write them in a book, these writings against this woman. And then he would reach into that bitter water that had the dust from the floor of the tabernacle and holy water from, taken from the, the, uh, um, the urn as, where they would wash. And he would take that out and he would squeeze it out above the writings And the water would run down the front of the page, soak up the ink, and the ink from that would drip down into the water. So the words, in a symbolic sense, 
that he had written, the curse that he had written, would flow down into that water, and then that water would be given to her to drink. And he will make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse. And the water that brings a curse will enter her to become bitter. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, wave the offering before the Lord, and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the offering as its memorial portion, burn it on the altar. Afterward, make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then it shall be. If she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully toward her husband, that the water that brings a curse will enter and become bitter, and her belly will swell and her thigh will rot, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive children. This is the law of jealousy. When a wife, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself. <clears throat> we can take a look at that, as I probably have most of the times I've gone through it, and thought, wow, that's a trip. And great, I'll mark that down for one of those weird way out sections in the scripture that we read. But listen, Jesus said something. He said to the scribes and the Pharisees, You search the Scriptures, for in them is life. But it is these that speak of me. The the Scripture points to Jesus Christ. And whenever we come to things that seem a little weird, we may want to back up and say, Okay, how, in what way, how can this possibly point to Jesus Christ? How can this point to Him? Well, For example, as we take a look at it, you notice there's no test for the jealous husband. Right? The jealous husband, he he does this thing and the wife goes under it. Now, there are a lot of rabbis that say it's implied and there was a test for it, but there's nothing in Scripture that talks about that. And people can get on the bandwagon and say, well, that's that male chauvinism that's all throughout the Bible. Maybe. Maybe it's pattern. Maybe the man is a picture of Jesus Christ who loves us with a godly jealousy, desiring not to share us with any other. And there's no question about whether or not he is true. And maybe you and I We're the woman. And the test of the offering of jealousy pictures our relationship with him. And when you do that, and you think about that a little bit, it ought to remind you of the Gospel of John in chapter 8. So let's take a look at it. John Chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning, He came again to the temple. And all the people came to Him and He sat down and taught them. 
And the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. The charge that they are bringing upon this woman is without witness. No witness. She's caught in the act, but they have to present two or three witnesses. The man is required to be there. He's not there. (laughs) But this woman is brought before him. Now Moses in the law condemns such a one. What do you say? They said this, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stood and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. And when they continued asking, he raised himself up and said, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Now hold your finger there. Let's go back to Numbers chapter 5. And let's look at the events that were to take place. We see in verse 17 that the priest would take holy water in an earthen vessel. Water throughout the scripture is a picture of the word of God. When is the word of God wrapped in an earthen vessel? The scripture tells us that you and I have the treasures of God in these earthen vessels, our bodies. When was the word of God clothed in human flesh? In Jesus Christ. So we see this earthen vessel and the holy water becoming an example or a picture, if you will, a pattern of Christ. And then, isn't it interesting what's added to the water next? What was added next? Dust from the floor. What did Jesus write in? Dust on the floor of the temple. He was in the temple area. Not in the temple, but in the temple area. And he stooped down and he wrote in the dust. The word in the Greek used for writing in the dust means to write against. So whatever he wrote, he was writing against those who were looking. That's where people get the idea that Jesus was writing down their secret sins. In the dust. Take the dust from this. This is... Uh, verse 18, to put in the offering for remembering. The offering for remembering, which will be placed in her hands. Then <clears throat> we have the wave offering taking place. As we, as we roll ahead to uh, verse 23. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book, and he will scrape them off in the bitter water. The scripture lays out for us that the writings that were against us, the curse against us, has been taken out of the way, nailed to the cross. So here we see the holy water being smeared over the charges against the woman and drained into the, to the bitter water that she's going to drink. Drained into that water. And we see in the New Testament, Paul writing, that the charges against us are taken out of the way and nailed to the cross of Christ. <coughs> Blotted out, if you will, by the holy water. But then the scripture goes on to tell us, now, if she's innocent, then it's not bitter to her stomach. But if she's guilty, it's bitter. 
If we look at it through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, wiping out the cursings by the cross, if we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ of the cross, we can drink deeply of the water that Jesus offered in John chapter 7. If any of you thirst, come unto me and I will give you living water. Water for which you will never thirst again. We put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We can drink the water that Jesus gives us without bitterness, without the, the rotten thigh or the swelling belly because Jesus Christ paid the price for us all. But if we reject, then we drink our own cursing upon us. When we look at it and we plug Jesus into the equation and we consider what Jesus said to the to those in John chapter 8 as he said listen let you who is without sin cast the first stone throw the first stone at her and then do you remember what Jesus did the scriptures tell us that he stooped back down again and as he stooped back down again and began to write in the sand they began to leave and those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing in her midst. Where were the witnesses? Gone. The only one who truly knew her guilt or innocence was standing before her. And she was guilty. She wasn't innocent. She was guilty. Jesus raised himself and he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of her? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. So Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We plug Jesus in. Anytime we plug Jesus in, we can see the light of what God is establishing. The, 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 there's a variety of teachings on this that the Women, if they were guilty psychosomatically, they would freak out, and so they would know. I don't think that's the point at all. I think there's too many references between this event in Numbers and John chapter 8 and the woman brought before Christ. I think there's too many examples of it. I think it's a pattern, a picture of what God says about the nation of Israel. For he tells the nation of Israel, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. The relationship that God wants with us. It's a picture of that relationship that the nation of Israel is going to break and that you and I break too. And I think when we break it and we're brought down and we remember and we think of the, the, the enemy maybe pours out that condemnation upon us, God wants us to remember the rest of the story when that really happened. When the woman was brought before God. When there were no accusers. And she was guilty. And Jesus said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Because in Christ Jesus, we have all we need to overcome the sin in our life and be purified. She was a sinner. She would always be a sinner. She still today not being in glory, is a sinner. Forever. It's what we are. But when we see Him, we will be like Him. 
we throw off all the junk, all the failures, all the ways we fall short. And we realize that the Bible declares, guys, in the New Testament, the Bible declares we are just men and women made perfect in Christ. <coughs> we are perfect in Him. In Him. Guilt or innocence doesn't matter. We can drink the water of cursing because Jesus Christ <coughs> has paid the price for that which separates us from him. Now as we go on in verse 29 of chapter 5, uh, verse 30, And when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man, he becomes jealous of his wife. When he shall stand the woman before the Lord and the priest will execute all this law upon her, then the man will be free from iniquity. But the woman will bear her guilt. The man is free of iniquity. The woman will bear her guilt or innocence, depending on, on whatever the case would be. Again, what's the point? It's not just about organization. It's about purification, purifying, setting aside, pulling yourself out, separating yourself unto the Lord, not just from sin, but to God. And allowing God to do that work. And realizing for you and I, that's done in our relationship with Christ. Not in a list of do's and don'ts. Our relationship with Christ, though, is also going to call us to leave some things in our life behind. To put it outside of the camp. And we want to be those who are willing to follow through and to do that. Now as we come to chapter 6, chapter 6 is about the Nazarite vow. Nazarite vow. Now, when we talk about a Nazarite vow, someone always comes to mind. Samson. Yeah, Jesus too. Jesus, uh, the Nazarene, but it's a little different. Samson, in the Old Testament, <coughs> there are three in the Bible that were called Nazarites for life, from birth. Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. Three that were called Nazarites from birth. And in each of those three, with the possible exception of John the Baptist, there are areas in their life where they are going to break in some cases one, in Samson's case all, of the covenants that were part of their Nazarite vow. So, but when we look at chapter 6, now listen, if, if chapter 5 was about purification, being made pure in preparation for the warfare, the walk, the going out into the wilderness, then chapter 6 is all about sanctification, being set apart. And by the way, the Nazarite vow didn't ever have to happen. It was a choice. Nazarite vow was a choice. It could be for however long or short you wanted it to be. But if you made that vow to the Lord, God expected you to keep that vow. And he's going to express that vow as we take a look at chapter 6. So the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When either a man or woman consecrates an offering to take a vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord... He shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He will neither drink vinegar made from wine, <laughs> nor vinegar made from <clears throat> similar drink. Neither 
Shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh grapes or raisins? All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. First part of the Nazarite vow. No wine, no grape juice, no grapes, no raisins, nothing to do with the vine at all. Remember, this is a vow you made for what? Separation. To be separated for God. From the world for God. Chapter 6. All about being separated. And where did it begin? With all the, the fruit of the vine. Separated unto God from all of these unto him. And all the days of the vow is separation. No razor will come upon his head all the day, until all the days are fulfilled in which he separated himself to the Lord, and he will be holy. Then he shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. So, the second vow, don't cut your hair. You let your hair grow. The third part of the vow, don't touch a dead body. Now, when we study the life of Samson, which we'll get to shortly, in a year or two, when we get there, we take a look at the book of Judges, what are we going to see? We all focus on what? Samson's cutting his hair, right? He cut his hair. What did he do before he cut his hair? He drank the fruit of the vine, and he touched dead. You remember one of his riddles was from pulling honey out of the belly of the carcass of a dead lion. Last I checked, there's no way to do that without touching the dead lion. Pulling that honey out of that carcass. And the third vow he broke, or the third part of the vow he broke, was when he cut his hair. So as we take a look at this, remember, this is a vow for separation. And there are requirements that God had for that separation. And when we look at it, we might say, well, what's the big deal? This is ridiculous. Why? Why? Listen, we got to wipe that out of our mindset. When you come to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to be separated unto you, whatever God tells you to do, you ought to do. Now, does that mean that I believe God calls us to a Nazarite vow today? Well, of sorts. I think there are ways that God wants us to be separated unto him. I think there are opportunities that God wants to move in and among our lives to separate us to him. And the beginning of that separation, he may require something and we might say, well, what's the big deal about that? Who cares if I eat grapes? What is there some inherent evil in raisin? Only if God says not to eat it. Then there is. Those things that God calls in, through, and among our lives for us to change, for us to to lay aside, those are areas that that God wants our obedience. He wants us to follow. He wants us to go with Him. He wants us to do those things that He's calling us to do. In verse 7 He says, He shall not make Himself unclean, even for His father or His mother or His brother or His sister, when they die, because His separation to God is on His head. All the days of His separation He will be holy to the Lord. Total, undenied focus on the Lord. Not worrying about the dead, but focus completely on Him. And it's 
a vow that you made on your own. Hey, Paul did it. The Apostle Paul, we'll read about in the book of Acts. Paul made a Nazarite vow. <clears throat> Not for life. For a period of time, they would begin the Nazarite vow. We'll see how it begins here in just a moment. And then at the end of the Nazarite vow, they would close it off. And that was their time, dedicated, focused, completely consecrated unto the Lord. In verse 9, now if anyone dies very suddenly beside him, and he defiles himself, uh, uh, his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he will shave it. On the eighth day he will bring two turtle doves, two young pigeons, to the priest at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the priest will offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering and make atonement for him because he sinned in regard to the corpse. And he shall sanctify his head that same day. He shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation. Bring a male lamb of the first year as a trespass offering. But the former days are lost because the separation was defiled. What's that mean? On the last day of your separation in your Nazarite vow, if some guy died next to you suddenly and touched you, you started over. You started over. You got a fresh start, shaved your head bald, and started again, and consecrated yourself unto the Lord yet again. This is what the Nazarite vow was all about. Verse 13, now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he will be brought to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and he will present his offering to the Lord. One male lamb in its first year without blemish as a burnt offering. One ewe lamb in its first year without blemish as a sin offering. <clears throat> One ram without blemish as a peace offering. A basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mixed with oil. Unleavened wafers anointed with oil, the grain offering and the drink offerings. And the priest will bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. So listen, when the period of the vow came to an end, the Nazarite would bring himself to the door of the sanctuary, the tabernacle. He would come first with a he lamb, a male lamb, of the first year that would be offered as a burnt offering. That's an offering of consecration. Then he brought a ewe lamb in the first year for a sin offering. The ewe lamb became the sin offering. And third, he brought a ram for a peace offering. After these sacrifices were offered by the priest, the Nazarite cut off all his hair and threw it in the fire under the peace offering as they were offered. This is how the Nazarite vow was brought to completion. So the priest will bring them before the Lord and offer the sin offering. And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice for the peace <clears throat> to the Lord and the Excuse me, with a basket of unleavened bread, the priest will offer its grain offering and its drink offering. Nazarite will shave his consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle and shall take the hair from his consecrated head, put it on the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the boiled shoulder of the ram, one unleavened cake from the basket, one unleavened waver, and put them upon the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his consecrated hair. And the priest shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. They are holy for the priests, together with the breasts 
of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. Well, what do we see? When we look at this separation of the Nazarite, we see the things, all the things that this Nazarite's going to go through. And we look at it and we think, man, it's, it seems so hard. It seems so difficult. Now, we take a look at our walk. Remember, the book of Numbers is all about wilderness wandering. We're wandering in the wilderness looking for that, re, that rest, the abundant life that Jesus Christ promised to you and I. But sometimes that road of separation from the world and unto God is long. And wine throughout the scripture is a picture of joy. But when the Nazarite vow is completed, when our separation from the world and unto God is finished, and we find ourselves face to face with him, there will be joy inexpressible. And the scripture declares, the scripture declares that no one will be ashamed. That means disappointed in a life that they live separated unto God. It's our choice though, right? I can live a life separated unto the world. I can chase the, the great American dream my whole life. My choice, right? Where is the greater reward? Separated unto God from the world, fully focused on Him? Or fully focused on what I can gain in this world and let the next world worry about itself? Everyone has a choice, right? Not everyone has to make a Nazarite vow. Not everyone has to say... I am willing, I desire to be separated from this world unto God. And that's what he's laying out for us in the Nazarite vow. He's calling for us to be purified, take sin out of the camp. And now he's calling for us to be sanctified, separated, set apart to him. You don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. But the only way that we're going to find satiation in this world, the only way we'll find the satisfaction that Jesus offers is in a life separated from the world unto God. And we can spiritualize each one of those things that are listed for us in the Nazarite vow and talk about not being given to wine and to strong drink, but I'm not sure that's the point. I think the point is to be Fully focus on what God is wanting to do in our life. What can God do in the life of someone who is completely and utterly focused on what God wants to do? Uh, just the thought of it is mind-boggling because, to be honest, we only have one example of it in the Scripture. His name was Jesus. And Jesus said, These things that you've seen me do, and greater you shall do. But what was it about Jesus? I spoke the things my father gave me to speak. I did the things my father gave me to do. He lived a life utterly, wholly separated unto God. Was it easy? If we think that the separated life is supposed to be, you know, a life of ease, we should take a closer look at the life of Christ. <laughs> was not... A life of ease. There was suffering. 
There was difficult things that he went through. But as we look at it, we want to realize and recognize that when we're willing to separate, when the time of that separation comes to a close, when there's no longer that thing where I have to separate myself from the world to be near the Lord, the day is coming when I'm going to be near the Lord no matter what I do. On that day we will drink wine. On that day there will be joy. On that day it's all going to be worth it. But aren't you reminded of the words of Paul when he said that of the great multitude that comes to Kadesh Barnea, which we'll read about in a few weeks, and of that great multitude that God did all these things through, with most of them he was not well pleased. I don't want to be in that number. I want to be in the group that he's well pleased with. Otherwise, what was this all for? What was it all about if, if all my desire is just to make it through? Be one of the two and a half million that God was bummed about. Now I want to be in that small group that he was proud of. How does that occur? Take sin out of the camp. Separate yourself unto the Lord. These are the lessons that God's laying out for us in these two chapters in the book of Numbers. Now as we come down... This is the law of the Nazarite who vows to the Lord that offering, the offering for a separation, and besides that, whatever else his hand is able to provide, according to the vow which he takes, so he must do according to the law of the separation. Whatever you give, whatever you vow to the Lord, God wants you to keep it. And then the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you will bless the children of Israel. Now you probably have heard this verse before. If you've been to any celebration of life I've done or any wedding, you're going to hear this at some point because God said, this is how you bless my people. This is a blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. As we look at this, one of the things we want to see is there is an interesting pattern that continues to follow throughout the Old Testament. The pattern is there are three times the Lord, the name the Lord, the Yahweh, is used. Three times. First, The Lord bless you and keep you, which is a reference to God the Father, the source of all blessing. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Who is it that reveals the face of God? No man has seen God at any time. He is revealed where? In the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And finally, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Where does this peace come from according to the scripture? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit poured out upon us brings 
peace into our life. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in the great blessing in Numbers chapter 6. So while we're thinking about that, I just want to take the last couple of minutes and talk a little bit about the Trinity in the Old Testament. So we got a couple of slides that I wanted to show you. One of the first places that we would discuss the fact that the Scripture declares that there is only one God is what's called the Great Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The word used for one is the word Echad, Echad, which means unity or oneness. There is a Hebrew word for singular or unique or one and only. It's Yahid. That's not used. The word used to describe the oneness of God, the unity of God, is the word Echad. When we do biblical interpretation, there's this fancy study on biblical interpretation called hermeneutics. In hermeneutics, there are several principles that define how Scripture is to be interpreted. One of those principles, the only one that I'll bore you with today, is the principle of first mention, which means the key to unlocking the definition of a term in the Bible is going to come from the first mention in Scripture. For example, first time the word love is mentioned in the Bible. It is the love from a father to his son who is about to sacrifice his son. Which becomes for us a very poignant picture of the love of God who loved the world and gave his son for us. So as we take a look at the key that the first principle, the word echad is used another place in scripture. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. When the Lord God brought Eve unto Adam, and he said, this is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. Echad, unified. Elohim in the scripture is another word used for God. It's one of the several words that are defined in the English Bible by the word God. Elohim is plural. You have cherub, and when you have more than one cherub, you call them cherubim. You have seraph. But if you have more than one seraph, you have seraphim. When you talk of God, singular, it's El. Plural, Elohim. Elohim is used. It is a plural noun in the language. In the original language, maybe you understand, maybe remember some of Spanish. You'll have nouns that must relate to the verb before the noun, that if they're, they should both be plural. If they're plural, if they're singular, they should both be singular. In the Hebrew, the name for God is almost, not totally, but almost always plural and used with a singular verb. Showing us a pattern in the Old Testament 
of the Trinity. If we go to the next, to the next slide, we take a look at the primary names. If we consider Elohim, Yahweh, or the Tetragrammaton, the name of God, or Adonai, it is used to describe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, I didn't take a lot of time to dis- use it to describe the Father. I figured that was obvious. The Son, El, or Elohim, used of the Son, Isaiah 9, 6. Called Yahweh, Psalm 68, 18, Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, 45, 21. <laughs> if you want a, a chance to take some of these down, I'd be happy to, to share some of those notes with you if you, if you want to do some, uh, some more study in regard. The Spirit, called Yahweh and Elohim, in Isaiah 11, 2, and Exodus 31, 3. So, just areas where we see the same thing being attributed to each member of the Trinity. We go to the next slide. I think we got eight more. Each member of the Trinity is, is uh, given the, 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 the description of having created the universe. The Father in Psalm 102, uh, the Son in Colossians 1.16, John 1, 1 through 3, and the Spirit in Genesis 1, 2, and Job 26.13. Each one is ascribed creation. What, what is the point? The point is, if each one are ascribed creation, then they were echad, unified, in the creation of the world. All things were created through this one God shown or depicted in three distinct persons. We see the next slide. The creation of man, the father in Genesis 2, 7, the son in Colossians 1, 16, the spirit in Job 33, 4. Each one is, again, given the responsibility of having created man. The, sec- uh, the next, number three, the incarnation. Who is responsible for the incarnation of Christ? The Father in Hebrews 10.5, the Son in Philippians 2.7, the Spirit in Luke 1.35. Now, again, we see on the pages of Scripture the understanding and the doctrine of the Trinity. The next slide speaks to us of the death of Christ. That the Father was the one responsible. Psalm 22.15, Romans 8.32, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He what? Gave his only begotten son. But in John 10, 18, Jesus said, no one takes my life. I give it. I lay it down. John 10, 18, the son takes responsibility for his death in Galatians 2, 20. And the spirit in Hebrews 9, 14. The point is, if each one take responsibility for it, then what the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, that the Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, with the use of echad, clearly points to a triune being, one of which we have none of here, which is why it's so hard for us to grasp. But then it doesn't seem odd to me that there should be something about God that is difficult for us to grasp. The next slide, the atonement. The Father is responsible for the atonement. The at-one-ment that is perpetrated by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Father has responsibility in Isaiah 53, 6 and verse 10. The Son in Ephesians 5, 2. The Spirit in Hebrews 9, 14. Next slide shows us the resurrection of Christ who raised Jesus from the dead. In Acts 2.24 and Romans 6, it's the Father. In John 10 and John 2, it's the Son. In 1 Peter 3 and Romans 8, it's the Spirit. Each one is a part of the process. The next slide speaks of the resurrection of all mankind. John 5.21 attributes it to the Father and the Son and the Spirit in Romans 8.11. And finally, <laughs> the inspiration of the Scriptures are inspired by the Father, 2 Timothy 3.16, the Son, 1 Peter 1, and the Spirit, 2 Peter 1.21. So as we look at it, just... So that there's some kind of sense that you go, you hear people talking on TV or the radio that the concept of the Trinity didn't appear until around the fourth century. Well, that's absolutely unequivocally untrue. It was evident within the early church fathers and it is evident in the pages of scripture. It is not clearly defined. It is not necessarily given the name that we that we give it this is how we try to define god and trinity triune father son holy spirit three distinct persons one god defined on the pages of scripture throughout the old and into the new testament we see pattern hint pictures genesis 1 what does it say let us Create man in our image. Why does it say that? Why plural pronouns being used? Because that's what is in the Hebrew. <clears throat> Who shall we send for us? Who will go for us in Isaiah chapter 6? When Isaiah says, I will go, send me. Again, plural pronouns used to define a singular God doesn't make sense. Except when you take the whole counsel of God's word, you look at the whole counsel of God's word, what it teaches, and that's where we find the doctrine of the Trinity. The point being in Numbers chapter 6, we see the blessing of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit at the close or the benediction of the chapter. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for this time that we could come before you. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, I, I just pray that our eyes will be open and understand, Father God, that uh, there's so much for us to grasp and understand as we study your word. Lord, we pray, Father, that you might be glorified and, and magnified, Father Jesus, as we Go forward, Lord God, as we desire to see you touch us and, and guide us and lead us as you prepare us to wander through the wilderness. May we make a decision to be pure, to take sin out of the camp. And may we understand that our, our being separated unto God is voluntary. And learn the lessons of that separation, the Nazareth 
the Nazarite vow. Father, may we realize that on the pages of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, they make sense when the light of Jesus Christ is shined upon them. Lord, I pray that you be glorified and magnified, that you be just a, a blessing in, through, and to us, Lord God, as we just seek to enjoy a time of fellowship together, uh, not only with you, but with one another. Lord, we ask that your word would accomplish that perfect work in our life as we seek to hide your word in our heart. We'll give you the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll go ahead and close in worship. We invite you guys to hang out and fellowship with us. We got uh, root beer floats outside. Wouldn't want you to miss out on a root beer float. God bless you guys. Go in peace.
that you hold this, that you guide us, that you are he who purifies, that you are he who separates, that you are an amazing God. Lord God, we ask your blessing. Father, go with us now that we might rightly reflect who you are, what you've done in our lives. Father, be glorified in us in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.